0: love your work do you think it's possible well you're about to find out it's time for 48 days to the work you love with dan miller on the 48 days online radio show whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul this is the program for you now here's your host dan miller well hey this is dan miller you know it's springtime maybe you need a spring tune-up Maybe you just need a front-end alignment. You know, I often relate things to that we handle in our personal lives to what we see with cars. Being a car guy, yeah, I often tell people, hey, you just need a front-end alignment. You don't need to replace the engine. You just need to to tune up. Well, we're going to be talking about how to do that in your work life. How to, in fact, look for the opportunities. Now, you know, today I got a lot of questions that are kind of discouraged about the way the workplace is right now, hostile work environments and so on. We're going to be talking about that. How much do you tolerate before you cut a trail and move on? Now that kind of, that differs from person to person. I mean, I know how much I'd tolerate in an unhappy work environment till about 10 o'clock in the morning on the first day and I'd be out the door. Now, I know that's not true for everybody and we need to consider multiple things, perhaps, but I just can't imagine working in an environment that would be described as hostile or a toxic corporate culture. All these terms we hear. Well, we'll look at that. As we look at the real life questions you all submit, if you've got a question, you can go to the 48days.com site, click on podcast. You'll see a couple of different ways there to leave a question. Be happy to entertain that for an upcoming program. We're going to take about 48 minutes to look at uh, how we value our work. Now, we're all smart enough to know that work cannot just be an exchange of time for a paycheck. I mean, if it's, that's all it is, you're going to get burned out real quickly. But work is our best opportunity to live out our calling, to engage the best of what we know about ourselves, our unique talents and skills and passions, and it's a way to create a legacy we want to leave behind. Well, here's some of the things we're going to be talking about today. Dan, I have been burdened with the thought that I'm not very good at anything. Gee, where do you go from there? Dan, should I walk out of this hostile job without knowing where I'm going? Please help, Dan. I have the option to make over 110000 or pursue my entrepreneurial passions. Now, what are you going to do if you have a chance to make hundred grand a year or pursue your passions? Which are you going to do? You probably already anticipate my response in that. We'll get to that. Dan, I want to provide an East Indian food service to truckers. Any ideas? Well, there's a unique niche. Hey, Dan, what do you think about the self-storage business? And then somebody says, I'm 60 years old. If I start a new business, I feel an extreme pressure because I can't afford to fail at all. What do you do if you're starting a business and you can't afford to fail? Well, I've got some new sites I want to add to your information pack today. Some things like Flippa, best site for buying and selling websites. You can go there. There's all kinds of really interesting things on Flippa. Websites where they have unique domains and uh, then think that uh, other people are going to step up to the plate and pay for those. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Things like, uh, I just pulled it up here, checkcashing.com. Now that's a pretty good domain. Filesfull.com wonderbrains.com late night toys.com dual fuel um group z bible map these are all domains that are for sale you go in there and bid on them and i mean you can buy domains like that with a fully built built website sometimes for 200 bucks but that's flippa f-l-i-p PPA. I've got some others here that I'll share as we go through. Now I've usually got a quote to start us off as I do today. I was listening to the new success CD where Darren Hardy, the publisher was talking, he was interviewing somebody and I think he was quoting somebody. I need to go back and verify, but he said this too much learning and not enough doing will turn you into an over motivated underachiever, over motivated underachiever. If you just keep on getting learning without doing anything, now, how do we find that balance between knowing and doing? Now, let me give you an example. I mean, imagine for a moment that your three-year-old daughter slipped and fell into the pool while playing. You've never had swimming lessons. You don't know the temperature of the water. You don't know how deep the water is where she went in. You aren't sure that your suit is going to withstand the effects of the chlorinated water. Are you going to go do some research on each of those issues before acting? Well, of course not. You're going to just jump in and save your daughter. At that instant, you know that doing is more important than knowing. But I see a lot of people who've been researching. I mean, I talk to people, being a writer, I talk to a lot of writers. Yeah, I'm working on my book. Well, how long have you been working on it? Well, seven years. I'm like, are you serious? What are you doing? Well, I'm gathering more information. I'm researching every time I have it about ready to go. I mean, I've got a friend who's who's a really successful business guy and has a wealth of information to offer as a business coach. He's been working on his book for seven years. And I'm like, dude, pull the trigger. It's going to be dated and obsolete the moment it's printed, granted, but you can't just keep compiling new information. You'll never publish the thing. Get it done. Or an employee who's been studying small business for 14 years in anticipation of starting a business. Now, I think there are times when gaining more knowledge becomes less and less valuable as opposed to doing something. And like most things as I approach them, it's not a matter of either or, it's clearly a matter of and. You start doing while you continue learning. Now, here's some examples. Just some quick examples of things that I've done. When I started an auto accessories business, I went out on the first day and I secured seven different jobs. Now I went out and promoted myself as a guy that could do add-on accessories. This was back when pinstriping, wheel lip molding, door edge guard, side molding, those kind of things were popular as add-ons. And I had dealers readily say, well, sure, I want you to do this guy. It's seven different jobs. Then I went home, spent the rest of the day throwing up because I had to try to figure out how to do what I had already sold. But that's, I always do that. I just jump in the game and figure I can learn as I go along. When I went back to graduate school, I secured a teaching assistantship. I had had some interesting work experience, so they gave me an assistantship. That meant that I had my tuition waived, but I was going to teach like three sections of Psych 101 to freshmen. Now, they did not assign me a mentor. They didn't, they told me I could choose whatever book I wanted. I mean, I couldn't believe how much totally on my own I was, but I walked in to that first class the first day, I shaking in my boots, no doubt about it. I'd never had an education course, never had a teaching course, and I just walked in there, winged it, learned from the kids, had a great time, a great experience doing that. My first product was a loose compilation of my Sunday school notes. I ran them off at Kinko's, used a plastic spiral binding to hold them together, offered it for sale for twenty four ninety five. I mean I didn't never talk I never talked to a publisher about how to how to write well. I didn't know anything about publishing. I just was responding to what people were asking for, so I just knocked it out, 24.95. Well, after I had sold about $2 million worth of that, I had publishers knocking on my door who wanted then to uh, publish a real book and teach me how how to write well. Well, I did it in that order, not the other way around. Typically, we pay for learning, get paid for doing, but the cool thing is we can also get paid for continued learning if we're doing at the same time. So don't be one of those over-motivated, under Just get in the game. Well, let me go right into questions and comments. Mike from, uh, where's Mike from? Don't see where Mike's from. Mike says, I'm catching up on the podcast. I want to say thank you for playing Taking Care of Business song all the way through a couple weeks ago. I bought it. It was so energizing. A couple of weeks ago I did that. I used the little clip from The Old Bachman Turner Overdrive Taking Care of Business at the beginning of the show and at the out at the at the end as well. But I've never played the whole thing until a couple of weeks ago. I played it. It talks about, you know, doing something that you love and having work that's meaningful. That's what it means to be taking care of business. That's why I play that clip week after week. Well, thanks for your comments, Mike. This comes from uh, Joel, who says, I work in an extremely hostile and toxic work environment. I do inventory control. Parts are missing left and right all day, and I'm supposed to find them even though they may be on the truck out the door. I put out fires all day, and everyone else does too, as nobody seems to be on the same page. They have laid off 30 people recently, and I'm doing the job of about three people. They expect more out of me. It's affecting my health as a result. Although I want to walk out today rather than tomorrow. Is it wise without knowing where I'm going? It seems nothing is changing or getting better. And most folks are negative and bitter all day long. Well, no, Joe, I would not recommend walking out the door without knowing where you're going. What that does is that immediately creates additional stress leads to desperation very quickly. And people make unwise decisions when those things are looming over their shoulder. So no, I would stay in this life sucking hostile work that job that you've got, but very quickly create a plan of transition, but use that as a vehicle for income while you do that. So obviously I'm going to promote like a 48 day plan. By that time, you ought to be able to make your transition out, but that goes by in a blink of an eye rather than though creating the extra stress on yourself. Now I'm assuming that you don't have six months of income laid up as a cushion. I mean, if you do and want to take a couple months off, Hey, that's cool. Most people I find don't. Most people, when they describe their jobs like this, do not have a cushion. So if they left their job, they'd be in a desperate position immediately. If that's the case, don't leave your job until you have a new plan in place. But you can do that. Now keep in mind, we've got 168 hours during the week. If you're working 40, now we're down to 128 hours. You still have all that time. Certainly you're going to sleep, take care of other things in your life. But I mean if you carve out 10 to 15 hours a week where you're really working on your job search, where you're doing, sending out your resumes, introduction letters, cover letters, making the contacts, having interviews, and you can do a lot. In just discretionary time, while you're working a full time job, then get offers, then give your notice and make the transition on your own terms. See, so, yeah, I would do that. don't wait until but but do that I mean take that initiative immediately. Don't wait until the circumstances you're describing puts you on the street or in a position of desperation. Joshua from Hickby, Missouri says dan i'm twenty seven years old." Been in the fire and emergency services for the last five years. I found that the departments I work with don't know their own rules, regulations, and don't seem to care. Decisions are made on whatever seems to work at that time or how the boss feels. Is the whole world like this or is it just where I work? I enjoy budgetary planning of department funds, submit proposals that would provide these departments more bang for their buck. No one is listening. I believe I know what I enjoy and I'm good at. Help me get to where I do I can do what I enjoy. Thanks for your time and advice. Now, when, when we talk about this, let me just switch gears a little bit here because when I hear people talking about being in a hostile work environment and they're working with a bunch of idiots who don't, don't know what's going on. I mean, granted, all that can be absolutely true, but if you aren't careful, it creates a mindset where you take that with you to a new environment and it can be very counterproductive and work against you anyway. What I would encourage you to do is make sure that you are building and developing great personal skills yourself so that it makes you a very attractive candidate, wherever you're going to go. If you go into a job interview and they say, why'd you leave your last job? And you say, well, I was working with a bunch of morons. You probably just sabotage any chance of getting a job offer where you're applying because, the expectation is going to be, hey, you're going to feel the same way about these people once you've been here for three weeks because people tend to bring the same expectations with them. I mean, we build in those habits, expectations. Those are part of who we are. Good interviewers will pull those out of you and they'll know what you, how you feel about your former place of employment. Don't ever knock your former place of employment or say what a bozo your previous boss was. Those are real red flags for somebody considering bringing you on as part of their team. Here's what I recommend. Go right back to the old classic. We talk about a lot, how to win friends and influence people. Six ways to make people like you. Number one, become genuinely interested in other people. Number two, smile. Number three, remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Number four, be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. Number five, talk in terms of the other person's interest. Number six, make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. Now, I highly suspect that if you were doing those things where you're working now, all of a sudden the culture may change. Your perception of the people that you're with may change. How you're being treated will certainly change. But work on yourself rather than trying to change those around you and it will increase your opportunities, whether you stay where you are or move on guaranteed 100% guarantee on that one. Well, Chris from Charlotte, North Carolina says, Dan, I've been receiving some job offers talking to companies, but they're all for significantly less money than the current amount of money that I'm making. I want to be happy at a new job, but I cannot take a significant cut in pay. What are your thoughts on how to get past these types of roadblocks and lowball offers? Well, Chris, if you're doing an effective job search and you're talking to companies and you're receiving offers and they're for less money than what you're making now, that's something you need to really be realistic about. Because if you're doing a job search, you ought to get a realistic feedback about what your marketability and value is. So if you're getting offers, but they're offering you less than what you're making now, I mean, isn't that a realistic feedback about what your value is in the real marketplace? You can't just arbitrarily decide, well, you want 60, but you're being offered 45 because of the skills that you bring to the table. No, what you need or what you want has nothing to do with how you're going to be compensated. Your compensation will be based on your level of responsibility and the real contributions you make to that organization. So if you want to make $80,000, you have to be clear that you're going to bring that much value to the organization. And if you're getting consistent job offers that are less than what you're even making now, then I'd say you need to be realistic about what your value is. Go to things like salary.com, put in your level of work experience, your level of expertise and so on. You can get some realistic medians about what your compensation should be, but don't think that just because you've been somewhere another year, you're another year older or that you, need more because you just bought a new house and you want to get that new Mercedes. No, those, those things really have no connection to how you should be paid. You're going to be paid no matter what your age, background, credentials, experience, whatever. You're going to be paid on what it is you contribute to a new organization. So be realistic about that position yourself, then hold your head high and certainly negotiate for that. But you can't just artificially go up because you think it's time to go up. Chad from Knoxville says, Dan, I followed your podcast for three years. I'm starting a new woodworking business in Knoxville. Now, this is an interesting approach here. My question is now that I've gotten my first Kickstarter project launch with 33 days to go, how can I spark the interest in people to donate their hard-earned cash? I take so-called waste trees fallen from storms, disease, and construction and turn them into beautiful hand-carved fireplace mantles. Thank you so much for the inspiration and direction you offer to all of us who are seeking out your, our purpose on this planet. If anyone would like to fund my project, go to the unwieldy Kickstarter a link of it gives it. If I had a, mmm, golly, I should have looked at what that is. I, I did go to your website, Chad, and, and I love what you're doing in the description. However, the picture that you have there is horrible. It shows, it doesn't show a finished project at all. It just shows some wood. It's a very non-engaging picture. Show one of the pieces that you finish and then create a little video to go along with that to talk about how this is ecologically cool thing to do that you're redeeming wood that would otherwise just be burned or pushed into a landfill and you're making these beautiful um, man- fireplace mantles. I mean, your your website, your Kickstarter project just doesn't do anything to really get people excited, and no matter how worthy the project that you're doing is, nobody's going to feel obligated to give you their hard-earned cash, as you're talking about. Ultimately, people are wondering what's in it for me. Now, let me give you a couple examples. Pebble Technology, using a Kickstarter project program, raised ten million two hundred and sixty-six thousand eight hundred and forty-five dollars. Ten million dollars with sixty-eight thousand backers but they've got these watches that they were proposing to make these really cool watches that sync with your Android or your iPhone. So you get, I mean, you can be washing dishes and your phone rings in another room and you glance at your watch and it tells you who's calling. It's that kind of thing. I mean, it's really cool. Now they haven't been able to deliver those yet. Thus, there are some challenges there, but people were able to choose watches that they wanted to actually get and they could get them in different colors different kind of band designs and all that when we launched wisdom meets passion we did a little indiegogo project which is very similar to kickstarter same kind of thing but people people could purchase books they could get them with the ubuntu medallion that we that jared my son designed and we had it cast in brass they could get work study guides to go along with the books Uh, some people signed up for a one-time experience, to for eight hundred eighty bucks, they could come to the sanctuary. They would get not only, I think, like four books and some other goodies, but they could come to the sanctuary for a night, and and Joanne and I would take them to dinner. We had two people that did that level of contribution, but there's got to be things that the people are getting. They 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 will not respond, where it's just a pure donation in as much as they're putting money in, they aren't expecting an investment return. And in that sense, it is titled a contribution at the same time in the successful Kickstarter programs. People are getting something back. I mean, I've, I've done a bunch of those. I mean, I helped a guy fund a wooden canoe business where he takes people on tours of the river in Portland. Now I never, I never cashed in on what I got as part of that but I just thought it was a cool kind of thing. There was another group that was doing a documentary going around the country and it was a stop saying I'm fine. Thanks. Something like that. But talking to people who really were figuring out what their passion was and they were doing a documentary again. It was a a cool little Kickstarter program. They raised about a hundred thousand dollars and I contributed to that. I think I got the actual DVD. I've never watched it, but I, I got it, but you gotta have something that people are getting in this incidentally just as an aside on this a lot of people are raising money through kickstarter indiegogo and other sites like this where they use crowdfunding and then not being able to deliver on the product i mean i know some guys that raised over four hundred thousand dollars because they showed this cool little espresso machine they were going to do for like 150 bucks very portable, colorful. They were going to hand make them. Well, they got so many orders. They were immediately overwhelmed and they still haven't figured out a way to deliver on that, but they have $400,000. So now they're trying to figure out how to find a manufacturer and get those delivered. But there's a brand new service out there called CrowdHut. Now this is CrowdHut. Again, I'll put that in a, in a podcast notes for today. This is a company that helps people produce and deliver their new product. Now they take, a portion of that they take like a third of the money that you get, but at least they help you get it up and running. Whereas a lot of people were finding that they simply didn't have the ability to produce what they were trying to sell. So anyway, different aspects, different opportunities and all these things. But for you, Chad, yeah, a cool thing that you're doing, but you gotta give people more and let them see more what it is you're doing to get your Kickstarter program off the ground. James from Heartland, Michigan says, Dan, I recently listened to you interview. The interview you did on blogging your passion helped inspire me to create my own blog. Writing is probably my number one skill in life. That said, I'm feeling pretty paralyzed right now because I have such a wide variety of interest. Ideally, I would just like to create my own personal blog where I write about all these different topics, but I fear that approach might not be best for business. Creating a new different niche blog seems like it might be a better approach for business, but I fear it would be more difficult to manage and that it also might zap my writing of its creativity. I used to blog about a variety of different topics on MySpace. People loved it. I'm just not sure if this jack of all trades approach will work in the business world. Now, James, I'm assuming what you're asking is yeah, for working in the business world is, will a blog like you're g- describing, Generate income. I get a whole lot of questions about this. A whole lot of questions from writers. People know that I write and that writing has served me pretty well. You know, how can I make money from my writing? Well, guess what? I think it's really difficult. You may think that I said, well, just write a New York Times best selling book. You know what? Inasmuch as I've had a lot of success in writing, That is still a really tiny part of my direct income, the money that I receive from advances and royalties. Now I receive a lot of income because we sell my own books. That's a different thing. That's not something that most writers want to do. They want a publisher to do that. And they just want to go sit by the mailbox and wait on those fat royalty checks to show up. Well, that's a dream. I don't know of any authors that do that. I do consider writing my primary my first love, my primary focus, but really what my writing does, it just serves as a marketing net to then direct people back to the things where I really make money. So James, in your example, I mean, it's difficult in writing a blog to make money. Now you can have little banner ads ads over on the side and you can have hyperlinks in your blog writing where you get affiliate commission, but those things are not going to produce significant income. They really aren't. Now with my writing, again, in the traditional way where I'm paid advances and royalties probably produces maybe 10% of my income. We're just doing year end reports here. I had to look at that specifically, but maybe 10% writing gives me a topic and a focus, but then it's through those aggressive personal product sales, my speaking, coaching, affiliate programs, live events. Those are the ways that I actually make money. I talk a lot about the Venn diagram that I use. You can get an example of that through our useful resources. I think we got it up there that shows the different components of things that I use, where I use writing as the core of what I do, but I don't use any projections financially from my writing alone. My writing simply fuels people to come to our websites where they then pull out their money and get involved in the things that actually do create income for us. Hope that makes sense. Again, this is such a common thing. Everybody knows it's easy to get into doing writing. It's easy to do a blog, easy to write a book. It's easy to self publish, get something up on CreateSpace, Amazon and all that. It's easy to do that. And then they're frustrated because it doesn't make them a millionaire. Well, it just doesn't. That's just not what its intention should be. You should write because you have a message you want to get out, but that message ought to then engage people in other ways where they can spend money. That's the way we ought to look at. You know, I, I had so many people respond in, in such a positive way to uh, the fact that I played all the way through taking care of business. Going introduce here a little bit from my favorite group of all time. You two. Now this is, I also comment, because I've had a whole lot of people that have uh, seemingly made this their ringtone on their phone, as I have. Now not all this intro, but when he gets just to the part, it's a beautiful day, when he sings out, it's a beautiful day, Bono does that, that's exactly what I've got on my phone. Every time my phone rings, it's a beautiful day, in as much as we're looking at some kind of negative input in today's questions here from people who are working in less than positive environments. We need this input here. We need just a burst of this. Let's listen to this. I'll come right back. you lend a hand in return for grace. It's beautiful Well, hey, I, I never get tired of hearing that. I never get tired of hearing that just pop up. It's a beautiful day. and We've talked a lot about last week it was kind of dreary here in the Nashville area. sun wasn't shining much. And, and I, I'm notorious, and sometimes my family wants to slap me around because whenever they comment on how dreary it is, I say, well, I carry my sunshine inside me. Now, it may sound some, like some little cheap positive mental attitude thing perhaps it is but it's served me well for a lot of years so i constantly think it's a beautiful day no matter what it looks like outside i love to be reminded of that well if you want to submit a question let me just tell you how you can do that as well as we round out here listening to it's a beautiful day but if you want to submit a question just go to the 48days.com site click on the podcast link you'll see there are a couple different ways you can either write it or speak it your question, be happy to introduce that for an upcoming podcast. Alex says from Virginia says, "Please help, Dan. I have the option to make over 110 grand or pursue my entrepreneurial passions. I just don't know what to do. I'm a high eye. I. I love helping people. I love reading, learning. I'm a recently graduated pharmacist part-time professor and resident teaching is my strength. I've found that I love helping students discover their passion, career and focus. It seems like every day I'm discussing career goals with students and with success. I've empowered dozens of students who receive job offers. So I think, why should I do it for free? Some goals for 2013 are learning more about coaching and to hire a coach for myself. But I wonder if I should start my pharmacy career, get more experience in my field or focus on a side business of coaching. Well, you've got a pretty interesting scenario here, Alex. You're a recently graduated pharmacist. Now, my question is, I mean, you don't just go for a walk in a park and end up as a pharmacist. Obviously, that's a real focused, intense study process, very expensive to get to that point. I mean, why did you do that if that in itself doesn't have enough appeal for you to jump in and do it? I'm not sure why you would redirect just as you're graduating from pharmacy school. Now, can you make money coaching students? Yeah, you can. Do you have to walk away from making 110 grand because you're going to coach students? Well, what I do primarily is coach. I mean, that's really the core of my business. I coach people, but I've found ways to do that through live events through affiliate programs, through speaking, through selling books. I mean, the things that I do, is it possible to make 110 grand, encouraging people to find their purpose and passion? Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, yes, it is. That and a whole lot more. I mean, certainly that can be done. So it's not a matter of one or the other. You can make all the money you want to as a coach. If you structure it properly, learn how to do it extremely well, put yourself in the top 3% as you would want to do if you were going to be a pharmacist. But I don't think you have to just ignore that passion. If you in fact, go ahead and become a pharmacist. I mean, if you work as a pharmacist, again, we're talking about 40 hours. I mean, you can even get programs where you work. I mean, I've, I've got a a friend, she's a single mom. She works. How does she do that? I think she works two 12 hour shifts on the weekend So she works 24 hours. But because of working on the weekends, she gets like time and a half. So she makes as much money as most pharmacists make working 40 hours. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing. Her ex-husband watches her son on the weekends while she works. And she gets paid for full-time by only working two days a week. And the other five days, she's a full-time mom. I mean, there's all kinds of creative things you can do with your degree in pharmacy. And plus, you can, in that environment continue to have massive contact with people who are trying to find their purpose and their passion. And you have the instant credibility of being that guy in a white coat that you may not have at your age. I don't know how old you are, but if you're young and just starting, you're going to have more difficulty having credibility as a coach at that age than you will if you are wearing that nice white lab coat as a pharmacist. So this is not an either or kind of choice. And and I think in some ways it's kind of foolhardy to walk away from your degree, being a pharmacist right now, just when you're ready to start after having invested all the time and energy and money in getting to this point, this is not an either or kind of thing. You can be a pharmacist for five years, get rid of your student loan debt that you've got, establish yourself as a reputable professional in the community, and then transition into coaching and you'll do nothing but accelerate your success as a coach. If you do it in that way, in that order, I really question just walking away from that and trying to position yourself as a coach. Do I think it can be done? Absolutely. I don't think it's wise in a situation. This question comes from uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada from Raman Kohli. Who says, Dan, I recently quit selling cars, started driving trucks again because I cringed at the fact of seeing people going into debt. I belong to the East Indian community, which also happens to be heavily involved in the trucking industry. Being a trucker myself, I've noticed no one is serving this segment with warm homemade food while they lay over at the local truck stops. Being servant minded and determined to be an entrepreneur, I'm considering starting an East Indian mobile food service specifically targeted toward this particular market. I know there's a great many details that need to be worked out, but I can start it without a pocket, very low capital as a weekend venture once successful. My wife and I are dreaming of turning it into a nationwide franchise someday. What are your thoughts? Thank you for all your encouragement to all of us. Well, thanks for your question. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a certainly a very possible idea. Now let me, let me just tell you my, my honest knee jerk reaction to it. If you're going to provide this at truck stops, I mean, truck stops get people to pull in there because they serve food among other things, but food is a big profit item for them. So they aren't going to want direct competition. They aren't going to invite you to come in on the parking lot as an example and sell food to truckers. They want to get them inside because they know once they're inside, then they will buy not only food, but all those other gadgets and items that they have to walk past and get into the food. I mean, you see how truck stops are set up. So I think you're going to have a hard time being welcome there. Now you can do some research, do your due diligence, do some research to see if anybody would allow you to come in and do that. Yeah. So you, you could, I mean, you could have like a catering truck choc- truck. I mean, there's service trucks that show up in construction sites and all that. Certainly you could do that and have access to truckers at various places along their travels but you're also talking about a very unique niche food. Now here, here's how this works. If we go out on a Friday night, it, just recently, we went out on a Saturday night. We went to Amerigo's, which is a really hot Italian restaurant. There was an hour wait. We went to Carabas, another hot Italian restaurant. It was about an hour and 20 minutes. Wait there. We went to Bonefish grill, another Hour and 20 minutes. Well, my wife and I know how to play this game. We we eat out all the time. We know the restaurants, and we know instantly we can go to an Asian or, or an Indian restaurant, we're gonna get right in because there's no crowd. Now that's great to know and great for us, but it's horrible for business. When you're talking about Indian cuisine, Inasmuch as much as you say that there's a lot of Indians involved in the trucking industry, and that, that's news to me, I was not aware of that. But if there is, I suspect it's still a pretty distinct subset of the truckers overall. And from my experience with truckers, I mean, I don't see them as being interested in fine cuisine for the most part. I see them scarfing down hamburgers, beer, and fries, and before they get back into their rigs, I know I'm making a mass generalization here, but but I think you need to be realistic. Is this a big enough market to make it profitable for you? If it is, can you find locations where you're going to be welcomed as competition for the other fare that truckers are being offered? Those are the things that I think you have to look at realistically in this. Just because it's your passion is not enough. Remember, we've got three legs to the stool. What is your passion? What is it that you do really, really well? What is it you're talented in? And apparently you and your wife are very talented in this. So those are two legs of the stool. The third one is that what's your economic model? How are you going to make this work? You have to have a clear plan and that has to be a realistic reflection of what the market is asking for. Brad from Greenville, Indiana I, Dan, my wife, and I are working the Dave Ramsey plan. I'm looking for a way to generate some extra income. I work as a cook, as a nursing home, and my shifts vary from first to second. I have in the past held part-time jobs in addition to my full-time job, but I felt like I was just spinning my wheels, not to mention spent way too much time away from my family. thought about doing part-time catering, but state health codes prevent you from preparing food out of your own kitchen and serving that to the public. I do, however, have quite a bit of experience working in different areas of the food business. Also, we're new to the area we live in, so I don't know anyone to network with. Any advice? Well, you you present about 15 different little challenges here, Brad, in what you're presenting. Am I a fan of working the Dave Ramsey plan and looking for a way to generate some extra income? Yeah, absolutely. But if it's going to be in the food industry, then how are you going to address these issues as you already have here? where you can't just whip up something in your own kitchen and take it out there and sell it. No, you can get time in a commercial kitchen. There's plenty of commercial kitchens pretty much anywhere that you live where you can get time there. You you may be able to go into a restaurant in between midnight and 6am because they're not using it. And so you rent that time. I mean, that's done that's done a lot of different ways. So you prepare your food there. So you are in a commercially approved kitchen and then you can take it out and sell it. You may decide that you're just going to focus on specialty items. You're going to do, you're going to cater to sales organizations where you provide a lunch or you're going to produce a particular item like cheesecakes or brownies and you're going to produce those and then sell those to other restaurants rather than being in competition against them. you're now a supplier for them. And you can do that. There are a lot of things you can do. Just try to work through a clear business plan to see how is this going to work? Can you make a lot of extra money doing something in the food industry? Sure. I mean, it's not an industry I'm fond of because the margins tend to be pretty slim. I mean, I'm spoiled by being in intellectual property arena where we have 97, I mean, we can produce a CD for 11 cents and, you know, sell it. I mean, produce a CD for 37 cents and sell it for $11. That's 97% profit. There's nothing you can do in a food industry like that. I mean, I can speak, create a product where there's no cost of production and it's a hundred percent profit. It's hard to do that in the food industry. And obviously there's a whole lot of things where you have reasonable margins, but just create a business plan. See, can you do that? Or would it be best to to do something else to create that extra income that you're looking for. Where it would not have all the complications that are involved in producing food items. Alex, Lebanon, Virginia. Hey Dan, what do you think about the self storage business? I've given this thought, this some thought, but I haven't dived into the idea. Is this an idea worth pursuing or should I leave the idea behind? I have no business experience. I know nothing to real estate, legal issues or renting. I've considered renting as a source of passive income I know I should dive into the resources and seminars in order to figure out if this is feasible. Any feedback would be helpful. Thanks for all you do. Well, you, you've identified what you need to do, Alex. Certainly you need to become very knowledgeable about any business that you're proposing to get into. Go out and talk to the owners of six different self storage businesses. Pick their brains. I mean, get online, look at franchises, look at the business opportunities, get the, franchise offering circular from franchises in the self storage industry. I mean, they have to send that to you. It gives you a wealth of information about how that business is run. You know, what your potential target audience is, the potential income that you can make. All that can be gotten readily from a franchise offering circular that is required that they give you. If you say that you're considering purchasing a franchise, which would in fact be a reasonable way to approach this. Do I like the self-storage business? Absolutely. I think it's amazing. I mean, it's a, it's a business where you're getting an extremely high per square foot rent and that's what it is. I mean, if you rent an apartment to somebody for 1200 bucks, you take that same space and carve it up into storage area. I mean, it's ridiculous what you get for that per square foot. And there's no utilities. There's no people cooking there. They aren't sleeping there. They aren't fighting there. I mean, it's a real simple, straightforward business, extremely profitable. That being said, you have to look at all the other people who have already jumped into that in your market because there's a whole lot of empty storage space around because... There have been areas that have been overbuilt. So you have to look at what is already readily available. How far will people drive to go to a storage area? I mean, how much will they pay? What are the going rates? I mean, you can do business performa on it and you ought to be able to find the information to make you knowledgeable about it in 30 days where you are an expert, no more than 99% of the people on the face of the earth about the storage business. Do that first before you invest a penny But then having done that, if it still looks like there's an opportunity where you live. Yeah, I love the self-storage business. It, it, again, is a a very simple kind of business. I mean, it's like a big vending machine. Jeez, people just give you money, you know, just to use the space there. I mean, it's really a great business concept. Well, let me grab a couple more here. Matt from uh, Plano, Texas. I'm a former TV news photographer, got laid off on Halloween. I don't miss it, but I've been burdened with the thought that I'm very, not very good at anything. I'm 38 years old with a wife, three-year-old, a two-month-old, and I feel pressured to get a job. My passion is writing, but now it's not paying the mortgage. I'm upset with myself for not being business-minded or entrepreneurial. I imagine myself as a leaf blowing in the wind with no direction. I thought of being laid off as giving me the chance to do what I want to do, but I haven't found it. Am I doing something wrong? Can I find the confidence to be a success story I hear about on your podcast? I'm reading your book and listening to your podcast, which I find inspiring. Well, Matt, don't narrow your options so dramatically. You were working as a former TV news photographer. You got laid off. You're not, you're kind of burned out on, you know, having a traditional job. Obviously thought you'd do something on your own. But now here you are 38 years old with a wife, two kids, not creating any income You need to get a job. Doing something on your own is going to have a reasonable ramp up time. It takes a while. And from what you're describing as your starting point, I would not even recommend that. You may be surprised to hear me talk about to to recommend that because I am an entrepreneur from the top of my head to the tip of my toes. However, with what you're describing, your scenario, I would say, go get a job this afternoon. However, when you do that, then recognize it may not be your dream job, your dream career, but use that as a reasonable transition tool to then start creating something on your own. But then you're doing it from a position of strength where you can then start getting in a little bit of income here and there. Start building that and then you can transition when you have something up and running. I'm going to have lunch today with a guy who has been a really successful business guy on his own, putting together big seminars, doing things, but he's really crashed and burned. He's depressed and he's at the bottom of his barrel. No car, no place to live. I mean, that bad. I mean, I'm gonna, you know, gonna help him out. But you know what my advice to him is gonna be? It's not, yeah, you know, I know you got big ideas about the next big thing. No, it's get your butt out here and go get a job if it's at Home Depot or Taco Bell. Get a job. I mean, I read a little book recently, How Starbucks Saved My Life. Man, that's a delightful little book. This guy lost his high executive, highly paid New York advertising firm job, and he just crashed and burned. And while sitting there in his $2,000 suit in a Starbucks, little African-American gal looked over and said, are you here for a job? They were doing a job fair, and he didn't know it. And he looked up, and it was like, you got to be kidding me. But he said, yes. He took a job. Now, he, has, he wrote a book, How Starbucks Saved My Life. It's now being turned into a movie with Tom Hanks, and he, he's, he's going to bounce back up very nicely. But the, the three or four years that he has worked at Starbucks faithfully, riding the, the subway every morning, not having a car, living in a cheaper part of town, I mean, it's an amazing story. That's what I'm going to recommend for this former, very important Successful business guy that I'm going to have lunch with today. You get out here and get a job. If you get a job, I'll help you out with a little rent money and maybe a car. But I'm not going to give you any support if you're going to sit here and fantasize about your next big business on the internet. No, you're not in a position to do that. Get out here and get a job. That's really what I would recommend. Hey, one more here. Ken says, I'm 60 and I'm employed. Yes, I'm 60, I'm employed, but I feel like I need more money because my mom's in assisted living. If I start a new business, I feel extreme pressure because I can't afford to fail at all. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as a business where you have the guaranteed assurance that you are not gonna fail. Failing comes as part of the game. If you're gonna do something on your own, the potential of failing is a high likely potential. That's okay, it shouldn't stop you. But if something has big potential, it has big potential to fail with it as well. It's just part of the same game. Don't think you're gonna find something, the more you wanna guarantee, the more you move out of things that have big potential and the more you move toward a traditional job. If you don't wanna fail, keep your job. If you wanna increase your income, Find a job that pays a little bit more. I mean, you can do that. But don't go out into your own venture if you absolutely do not allow yourself any potential to fail. Well, how's that for an up note for the end of the day? Well, hey, I love the opportunities we're seeing all around us right now. I may pick up on that next week again. Talk about that a little bit more, what the potential is to fail, how we ought to view failure as we go into new ventures. Hey, thanks for being part of this gang. I see more of you on 48days.net. We're having a blast over there, getting ready to do some new exciting things there. Thanks for being part of this crew who are in fact finding or creating ways for work that is meaning, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable.